Ready for inspiration? A lesson in cardiology and a dose of hope? Welcome to the Heart Chamber, patient stories from open heart surgery and recovery. And I'm your host, Boots Knighton. Oh, hello. Welcome to the Heart Chamber. My name is Boots Knighton, and you are joining me and my friend Mary for our very first episode. We are so excited today. I asked my friend Mary Olson to join me because I've learned that you don't have to do hard things alone. And starting a podcast felt very hard, but very right. And I knew that I just didn't want to speak into the void to all of you listeners. So I asked my friend Mary to help me birth this podcast. So please welcome my friend Mary Olson. Hello, Mary. Hello. I'm so thrilled <laughs> to be here. So honored to be part of sort of drawing out and, and helping you tell your story and give sort of space for that. And just so honored that you asked and happy to be here. Thank you. And Mary is joining me from the state of Washington. And Mary and I have been very dear friends for gosh, almost 16 years now. I like to say I'm married into the relationship. Uh, she and my husband and, and her husband, Chris, are very close. And the first time I met Mary, she actually took me wedding dress shopping. And now she's helping me birth my podcast. So this is just a really sweet and fun moment for both of us. So I wanted to just tell you listeners, first of all, thank you for spending time with me on the heart chamber. I really wanted to provide an opportunity for fellow heart warriors like myself to have a space for finding comfort, for finding inspiration, support, because open heart surgery is no joke and it can be really lonely and it can feel very isolating. And my hope for this podcast is to provide a nugget or more of comfort for all of you listeners and also for caregivers, because it is no joke for caregivers, as I'm sure my husband would attest. So I am originally from Edenton, North Carolina. It's near the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And at the time of my I don't know what you want to call it, as, as, this, as my heart made it known that it needed help. I was 42 years old. I'm launching this podcast just three months before my 45th birthday, and I've mostly come through the other side. I currently live in Victor, Idaho, nestled in the Tetons, which has been a beautiful place to fall apart, get surgery, and recover. But I found that I had to travel to get quality health care. And my hope for you, the listener, is that I can make even that process a little easier, not only through my story, but through other stories of other patients that I have planned to come on and share their stories. Love it. So, Boots, you have been through so much more than just heart surgeries in this journey. Having followed along through the years, I can tell you not to not to give a spoiler or too many spoilers, but there's been this sort of journey and this tale has everything. It has tragedy, it has overcoming, it has, you know, forgiveness, it has redemption, it has so much more than you could sort of imagine. And so to kind of cover all that and really give each kind of stage of this journey space to play out and 
time to tell your story. Let's talk a little bit just about how you want to structure this and and kind of go through it. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, so I want to tell you the story in chronological order. It's a little long. I promise it's worth hanging on to the end. And I'm going to walk you through the physical parts. But then I want to walk you through the emotional and spiritual side of things as well that I don't think the medical community is well equipped to help patients with. They tried with me. They tried to give me a little snippet of what, what I should expect. But I really feel like if you're willing to like dive in and get really courageous and really get comfortable with sitting with yourself and being comfortable with boredom and stillness, there's a lot that you can gain from having heart surgery. And I truly believe that heart surgery doesn't have to be as hard as it sounds. And it can be a really powerful awakening to a much more meaningful and more awake life. And when I mean awake, I mean like experiencing all ranges of emotions and not being afraid and being courageous to try new things. I would not change any of my story for anything. And the perspective I have now is I'm still working on finding the words for it, but I can tell you that once you've been through heart surgery and you get to the other side, you realize that anything that you ever used to be upset about just doesn't matter. And it is such a superpower of mine now to be able to be in the present moment. And the gifts of that are just endless. And I I really credit my heart surgery for helping me get to that present moment. And I apparently I am an experiential learner because <laughs> I just don't think I could have learned that in a book or through all. I have a wonderful therapist, thankfully, and as great as my therapist is, and I show up and I do the work with my therapist every week, I don't even think I could have gained this superpower of being in the present moment from her. Heart surgery just has a way of doing that for you, but you have to let it. And I think that's the biggest piece is like, I was willing to let this heart surgery change me and mold me the way it was meant to. I really leaned in and got extra curious on what I was supposed to learn from this. And I can tell you as hard as it was, it, it has been worth it. Well, those are some good worthwhile spoilers to get into the rest of the story. First, tell us about what happened and how you first became aware that your heart was having issues. Okay. So, well, back in 2018, I had a really bad ski accident and I hit my head. It was a really gnarly traumatic brain injury. And by 2020, after so much rehabilitation, having to relearn how to ski, relearning to how to do a lot of things. I was really coming out the other side. But we noticed that I was starting to have more and more breathlessness, which was making no sense. We felt like the brain injury was over. I really felt like I was good. In fact, I was the strongest I'd ever been in my life. I was really on top of my game. And so my coach and I were like, what is going on with the breathlessness? And by June of 2020, and remember, COVID is raging, and it's just a crazy time for humanity. But by June 2020, 
it started to be pretty severe. Like I was like, as much as I'm working out, this is really getting out of hand. And I even vomited on a mountain bike ride five minutes in by mid-June and had to turn around. And then by June 25th, my husband and I had gone out for a walk to walk off some stress. Both our mothers had been diagnosed with cancer. My husband, Jason, his mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and my mom had been diagnosed with rectal cancer. And my car engine had blown up all in like the span of three days. And so we were stressed. And we went for a walk to just chill out. And I started having all these symptoms of a heart attack. And I'm a wilderness first responder. I've been through two courses. I mean, I really should know the signs of a heart attack. And we're walking and I don't say anything to Jason. I'm just trying to enjoy the evening. And I'm thinking this is just really bad stress. But I had the pain down my left arm. I had the elephant on the chest that you hear about. I was nauseous. I was sweating. I was being stabbed between my shoulder blades. And I just walked slower and slower and just was thinking, this is stress. This is stress. We get back home. I immediately lay down. I still don't say anything to him. And all the symptoms go away. And I'm like, yeah, see, it's just stress. So then the next day, we go on a mountain bike ride. And it was a pretty hot day for June. And we are starting to bike up this hill. It was beautiful. I was surrounded by a mahogany forest in the big hole range of eastern Idaho. I could see the Tetons. I mean, it was just an amazing day. And I felt like crap. All the symptoms started coming back. And I was like, okay, something's not right. And I was like, I should probably tell Jason. And I was thinking to myself, this is the last thing we need. And before I could even say anything, I was starting to push my bike up the hill. And he's like, what is wrong with you? And I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he was like, what? And I'm like sweating and like, I can't feel my left arm. And by then we were almost to the top of the climb. And he was like, we've got to call 911. What's, what's this blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, we're almost to the top. I'm sure I'm fine. <laughs> and so me and we're actually both wilderness first responders. And he used to work search and rescue on like Rainier and Denali. And he's been on ski patrol. And he's like, no, we need to do something. And I'm like, there's this is just really bad stress. Think about our week. And so we get to the top and I knew that the, the downhill part was going to be sweet. So I was like, I'm finishing this mountain bike ride. <laughs> so, so with heart attack symptoms, I'm like cruising down this amazing trail. I still remember how beautiful it was. We get back to the car. He's like, okay, we're going to the hospital. And I was like, no, I'm hungry. Let's go home. And so he, he reluctantly takes me home and cook dinner. I take a shower. I'm still having heart attack symptoms. And he was like, this is insane. We are going to the ER. And he calls a doctor friend. And the doctor friend was like, why are you still at home? Yeah. So we go to the ER and I'm like, this is going to be the most expensive you have anxiety bill ever. And we get there and they're like, okay, so we're not finding a heart attack. And of course, they took like blood work and did the EKG and everything and chest x-ray. And they're like, we're not finding a heart attack, but it really does seem like you're having a cardiac event. You need to see a cardiologist. And I was like, 
yeah, but see all this stuff and it's happening in our lives and like that could be it. But this is really not seeming like anxiety or stress. You need to do something. So a few days later. I was just going to say, I think there are statistics that first responders and doctors and anyone trained in medicine are the the last to admit they're having a heart attack. <laughs> and take I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, and of course, Jason couldn't come in because it's COVID and they had to do a COVID test on me. And it was just, COVID just made everything seem so much more stressful. Right. And so two hours later, I'm back in the car and we are just like beat down And I made an appointment the very next day to see a local cardiologist and we get in to see him a few days later. And, you know, like I said, I am as fit as I've ever been. And he was like, Miss Knighton, what are you doing in my office? And I was like, I am wondering the same thing. I mean, at this point, I had no clue that anything could be wrong with my heart up until this point. I have been a clean bill of health minus my brain injury. And so we start walking through all the symptoms and he's like, well, we need to do some investigating. And so, you know, I'm going to go and look for bicuspid valve. I'm going to look for myocardial bridging. I'm going to look for all these other different things. And we're going to need to do like a stress test and then probably a heart CT. At this point, my brain is about to explode because I had not heard of any of this. Jason and I had made plans to go climb Mount Bora, which is Idaho's tallest peak with two dear friends of ours. And so I asked the cardiologist, I was like, well, what do you think? Do you think I can still do this? He's like, I'm sure we're going to end up not finding anything. And this was an isolated event. He's like, that's what I'm hoping for. So why don't you go and climb that mountain? And I was like, great. So, you know, Jason's like, I don't think we should do it. I don't think it's a good idea. And I was like, oh, no, we're going. We're going. And he was like, I really don't think we should. And I was like, I will be okay. If I start having symptoms, I'll turn around. So we drive. It's like a six-hour drive. And we go with our friends. And we start, you know, the morning of this really – to, to get the listener being able to picture Mount Bora, it's a very steep four miles to the summit. And I'm kind of forgetting now, but it's like almost like 5,000 feet of vertical gain. And it's tricky and hiking and climbing. Cool. Yeah. You just don't go walk through a park. It is, you know, exposure, hands over feet at times. We didn't use ropes, but most people usually do. And so here I go, you know, unbeknownst to me, I really had had a cardiac event. And now I'm going to walk my butt up the Idaho's tallest peak. So we start walking and it's like five in the morning and I immediately start having symptoms. And my silly self continues to push through it. And my feet are tingling. My hands are tingling. I am breathing really heavy. I can't catch my breath. The higher up we go, it's getting worse. And we're with our friends and they had invited two other friends. And these people are so fast in the mountains. And for some reason, which I would find out in a few weeks, I was turning into a snail. So I was like way behind, really enjoying the flowers, but just dragging myself up the hill. And at one point, we all take a break and I lay flat. And my friend Greg says to me, he's like, my gosh, Suzanne, he, he calls me Suzanne. He's like, please don't. He said something to the effect of like, don't have a coronary on us because he could just tell I was really struggling. 
All the foreshadowing. <laughs> so much foreshadowing. So, so amazingly and stupidly, I get to the summit and Jason knew darn well I was not okay. And I was like, just so determined. And we get to the summit and I just like collapse. I'm just like so tired, but it was amazing. I'm so thrilled to say I've been able to go up Mount Bora. It is such a spectacular peak. And when I really was able to accept that something was wrong was when we started coming back down from the summit and all my symptoms went away and I felt good as new. And I've now later learned that, you know, I was no longer putting stress on the heart because it's easy cakewalk just going downhill. And so I pulled Jason to the side and I was like, I'm in deep shit. Like I am in really deep shit. And he could see that like all the symptoms, like I wasn't, you know, pale anymore. I could feel my hands again. And I was like, we're calling the cardiologist right when we get down. And by the next day, the symptoms were so profoundly severe. And so I called the cardiologist. I was like, this is almost like ER level pain. You know, can can you get me in for the stress test like immediately? And he did. He got me in the next day. By now, it's like mid-July of 2020. Okay, so COVID still still with us. And they allowed Jason to come in with me on this one. I was like, we need to figure out a way for Jason to be able to come with me. And he was able to. And the first thing they immediately found was the bicuspid valve. And it was really interesting because the stenographer who was doing the, or sorry, the sonographer, not stenographer, who was doing the initial imaging of the heart, he said it to me. He's like, you know, the doctor is going to mention this to you, so be prepared. But he's like, it's looking good. And meaning there was no stenosis, there was no leaking. There's a lot of problems that can go on with a bicuspid aortic valve. And and then the cardiologist came in and confirmed that. He was like, that was one thing I was concerned about. And you do have it, so that's good to know, but you're good. And the stress test was good. And that was what was really frustrating was... I blew that stress test out of the water because I was performing at such a high level. And, you know, the cardiologist was like, we need to keep digging. He's like, okay, so we, now we know about the bicuspid valve, but I really want to do that heart CT with contrast to see what else is going on with your heart. And so I had to wait until July 29th for that. And on the 30th, the results came in and I remember where I was sitting. I was sitting outside of my house enjoying a dinner with another dear friend of ours and Jason and the results come in on my portal, which I, I and I encourage all you listeners who are going through hard things like this to keep track of your health portal with your hospital, because that ended up being how I advocated for myself. So I read and I did read and I continue to read any doctor's note because a lot of times they'll have like how they interpret things, but they may not necessarily tell you. They might forget. It's important for you to use that to help you research so then you can better advocate for yourself. So as I was reading this radiology report about my uh, CT, it mentioned myocardial bridging. And that's another thing that the cardiologist was concerned about. The other thing it mentioned besides the bicuspid valve also was that all my arteries were undersized. And that was a lot to take in. And so basically, a lot of what he said he was worried that he would find, he found. 
And so I remember as I was reading it all, then I read it out loud to my husband, Jason, and my best friend, Kelly. I couldn't feel my body. It was like I had such a deep knowing that life was about to get extra, extra hard for me and that this wasn't a stress event. And that not only did my mother-in-law and my mom have cancer and I needed a new car, I apparently needed some work on my heart too. And it's so fascinating. I can I feel it all just as, as if it's happening again. It's like, I think we all just have this like constant drip of hope running through us every day because we get up in the morning. Hopefully everyone that's listening, we're all fed, we're all watered, you know, we are cared for and loved. And so the cardiologist, and here's where it took a turn for just the crummy, crummier. <laughs> the cardiologist didn't even call me with that report. He had a nurse call and he said, the nurse said, hey, you know, and I don't want to mention this cardiologist by name, but the nurse said, he's not worried about any of this. You likely just need an anxiety medication. And even though he said he was looking and yes, my bicuspid valve is still okay. I'm going to you know, have it monitor the rest of my life, I might need another open heart surgery. But he he was right about that. But the myocardial bridging, he was very wrong. And it wasn't just anxiety. And that's when I experienced my first true medical gaslighting by a doctor. And what really killed me about it was this man had trained at Stanford University and where like they, Stanford University is the place they are doing the most like research on the effects of myocardial bridging on the heart. And he had worked there. He had been in that. And for him to blow me off like that was so awful. And I felt like I had been thrown out to like the middle of the ocean with 50 foot waves and taking on water and had nowhere to turn so this and and this was a local this was somebody local this is the soonest you could mm -hmm. get into local available yeah. And, yeah and so then you know so where do you go from there once you get that it's not it's not in 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 harmony with what you know is going on with your body what you're seeing in the test results where do you go from there mm -hmm. well i continued to try to rationalize with myself maybe he's right i mean i really went through this period of i'm losing my mind which is classic gas gaslighting because i was getting more and more breathless jason could see it friends could see it i was getting to the point i couldn't even take a mile long walk on flat ground i went from like being the best shape ever in a matter of two months, feeling like I was going to die with any amount of exercise. And next, I referred myself to the University of Utah and got matched up with a cardiologist who did not believe myocardial bridging affects patients. He honed in on the bicuspid valve. He was like, that's okay. He even had me drive down to Salt Lake. In fact, I couldn't even drive by this point for very long distances. So a, another dear friend drove me down for a nuclear stress test on my heart. And they, they stressed it, but not in the way that would show that a myocardial bridge is causing problems. And so they too were like, 
nothing's wrong with your heart. And I was like, I cannot breathe when I move. I feel I'm having chest pain. And at the time, I was also having something called a vasospasm, which I knew nothing about. And I was starting to really suffer from endothelial dysfunction. And so endothelial dysfunction is when the linings of our arteries are made of endothelial cells. And to take a step further back from that even, you know, myocardial bridging is when the arteries of your heart, instead of laying on top of the heart where it's not being squeezed by the muscle of the heart, mine had tunneled into the heart. And so my LAD artery and my LCX arteries had tunneled into the heart. And for quite long distances, I think my LCX was almost like four centimeters. And my LAD, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of glad I can't quite remember, but it was at least three to four centimeters. And it was almost into the ventricle of my heart. So it was also considered deep. And so every time my heart beat, it was compressing those arteries and cutting off the blood supply to the heart. Well, Stanford University has discovered that the arteries can take that squeezing only but for so long. It's kind of like if you squeeze a garden hose over and over again, it's going to eventually give out and the water is not going to flow through as easily. That's what happens with arteries. So they're squeezed. And my arteries at that point have been squeezed for 42 years with every beat of my heart. And they finally gave out because uh, the endothelial cells that were lining the arteries were like, we've had enough. We're going on strike. <laughs> yeah. And so it, that, and that's what causes heart attacks because it cuts off the blood supply long enough to the heart and it causes heart damage. And so... You know, that's what was happening with me. I developed severe endothelial dysfunction. So my arteries weren't even opening properly. And I was having vasospasms, which feels basically like you're being electrocuted in the heart over and over again, or hit by lightning in the heart. And I have been hit by lightning. So I know the difference. That's another podcast and another story. Yeah. <laughs> but I have nine lives. I've already spent several of them. But, you know, U of U blew me off. And I was just running out of options. I was so desperate to get help. And so just something one day tapped me on the shoulder. I don't know. We could call it an angel, a guide, could have been my cat. I don't know. But look for a myocardial bridge support group on Facebook. And lo and behold, if there wasn't one. And that Facebook group saved my life. That's the spoiler alert. And... I will be, listeners, please continue to come back every week because I'm bringing other folks on from various Facebook support groups for various heart ailments who have found hope and healing through social media. While social media can be toxic and hurtful, it can save a life. And I am a living, breathing example of that. So I get accepted onto this Facebook group and I felt like I I knew I'd found my people. I knew I was not crazy by reading all these stories. And there's so much medical gaslighting happening around the country over this myocardial bridge congenital defect. And so I got in touch with a few people and I realized I needed to get to Stanford University. And so I quickly contacted my local cardiologist and I'll never forget the message he sent back to me over the portal. He said, it's not necessary. It's not appropriate. You just need anxiety medication. Wow. Wow. So I self-referred. I sent my own stuff 
to Stanford. And because COVID had basically shut down any elective surgeries, believe it or not, having myocardial bridge correction, it's called unroofing the surgery, is considered an elective surgery. And it's, I mean, it is like I could either sit still for the rest of my life and not move my body until my heart gives out or get the surgery. And because it's not immediately life-threatening unless you're having a full-blown heart attack, it's, yeah, it's another reason why it's considered elective. So I sent my records to Stanford and they looked them over and Dr. Schnitger, who's like head of the myocardial bridge research there, she was like, yeah, you likely need surgery. Your bridge is pretty significant, but we can't get you in. At this point, it was mid-September 2020. He's like, she's like, we can't get you in until mid-December because COVID had shut things down. They were just starting to open back up, but there was still no vaccine and it was still really raging across the country. She was like, it could still get delayed. And by the end of September, we had mid-December officially scheduled with Stanford. And then all I could do was sit and wait. And so all fall of 2020, I sat in my house and waited for life-saving heart surgery. And that was such a pivotal time for me. I am thankful I had the time because... It gave me some necessary opportunities to work with my therapist around the notion that I had not been born perfectly, that I had several things seriously wrong with my heart. It just took a long time for me to wrap my head around the fact that I was going to have open heart surgery and that it was maybe not going to be the only time and that I was not ever going to be 100% again. And my whole life crumbled before me. And my ego was like, you should be out mountain biking, you should be out hiking and getting ready for the next ski season. At the time, I was a ski instructor. And normally I was in ski fit and like booking clients for winter. And I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even wash dishes. I could not even stand in my kitchen and wash dishes. My heart would hurt too much. So, you know, I will never forget the friends who brought meals because I wasn't able to cook. Friends showed up and cleaned our house, walked our dogs. It was it was amazing. Friends from out of town came to stay with us and help. And by early December, I was packing, getting ready. And the day before we were supposed to get on the plane to fly to Stanford, Stanford calls and says, hey, we're just calling to reconfirm. We're so excited to see you. You got to go through like 8 million COVID tests. I mean, it really felt like 8 million. It was insane. And, you know, you have to do all these things. Like I had to do another stress test. I had to do a heart catheterization, which was his own surgery. I was going to have three surgeries while I was at Stanford. And I was like, okay, great. And then an hour later, they called back and they're like, you're not going to believe it, but our ICU just filled up with COVID patients and we have to cancel your surgery, your final open heart surgery. And we had planned, you know, we were going to be there for three weeks because like after the open heart surgery, then we were going to have to stay for two more weeks for me to recover enough so that I could get back on a plane and fly home. I mean, it was like such an undertaking to get to Stanford and do all this. And... I, for the first time since all this began, I just sat in my, on the floor of my bedroom and cried. And I had just been counting down the days 
until we left for Stanford. And then I had a separate countdown for heart surgery, getting to the other side to recover. And I'd been reading all these amazing stories of hope on our Facebook support group for myocardial bridging. And I was like, I actually might be who knows, maybe I'll be even better than before. And I can run up mountains even faster. I mean, I was all about like, how can I come back better, faster, stronger? My ego was still very loud about performance. I like kind of cringe when I say that out loud. Now, that was important to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they're like, we still want you to come. There's a chance that like, that could get reversed. You need to do all this other testing anyway to make sure that, you know, the the surgery would work because like in the heart catheterization, they do this dobutamine test that tests the arteries to make sure that they really are being affected by the myocardial bridge. And Stanford's really one of the only hospitals in the United States, well, at least at the time, that could do that kind of testing. So we go, Jason's like, I have to be in a wheelchair. So he's like wheeling me through the Salt Lake airport and then the San Francisco airport. It's like so ridiculous. I mean, flying was so hard on my body. And, you know, Stanford is amazing. They put me through all the tests. The heart catheterization was so awful. It was awful because it was really, because my bridges were causing the problem. They did respond to the testing and they were like, you really need heart surgery. You really got to fix this, but we really can't do it (laughs) because we have, you have to have an ICU bed to go to and we don't have one. And I was so angry. And they were like, so you get to go get back on a plane and fly home and we might call you in March or April. We really don't know. And so it took a long time for me to recover from that heart cath. But, you know, we waited a few days to get on the plane. We flew home. But I want listeners to understand that, like, you do not bounce back from a heart catheterization especially if they do the dobutamine test, like, and especially if you have a myocardial bridge that is really affecting you, it really knocked me down. And I was probably not feeling, not that I was feeling like myself anyway, but I really felt like I wasn't going to die maybe about three weeks later. It was that hard on my body. Well, and it's interesting because it's maybe the first time where you were really what you were feeling was validated by, by these testing, right? Like they, oh, oh yes, yeah. it really is. Like you finally got mm-hmm. this validation, but with it was also the, the in your face, just slam punch of, of, but we, we can't actually do this thing that will fix it. Right. Um, so to have the thing, two things together at the same time, like your first validation along with the, and we can't do anything about it. I just can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, I mean, they do one unroofing surgery a week at Stanford, and I was the first one they had canceled. So they did it all the way up until I got there. And then it, right when I got there, basically, was when they like, nope, we can't do this anymore. So like I had, if I had just been one week earlier, like if my cardiologist in Jackson had referred me when I asked him to, you know, like that was the story I was telling myself. Like I wanted it done yesterday. I wanted to be better and perfect tomorrow. Like there was no, my inability to pivot and my inability to be flexible 
I, I mean, it that was problematic. And to, you know, my own defense, I mean, I felt like I was like my heart wasn't getting enough oxygen. <laughs> it wasn't getting enough blood flow. So I yeah, patience, patience was not a virtue at that moment at that moment. So on the way to the San Francisco airport, after we had just been beaten to a pulp at Stanford, but in a very loving way, it was just very hard and stressful and lots of tests <laughs> and lots of COVID tests. Oh, my poor nose. I get on the Facebook support group and I happened to just ask the question to, to let everybody know what had happened. And I was like, I, I'm not going to live till March. There's just no way. And this woman responds. She's like, hey, I just found this surgeon south of Salt Lake City, Utah, and he just did my unroofing surgery like nine days ago. And I was like, what? I just didn't think any like very few surgeons do the unroofing surgery. Because you have to like cut into the heart muscle and it's not bypass surgery. Those who've had bypass, I mean, that's a surgery. I hear you. I see you. There's just something extra special about having your actual heart muscle cut. <laughs> I immediately like find this doctor. We're, like I said, we are like in the rental car on the way to the San Francisco airport. And I call the office and Jason's like, let's just wait till you get home. And I was like, I am not waiting. So I call these people. They like answer and I tell them my plight. And I said, I hear that the doctor at uh, Intermountain Hospital in Murray, Utah. And I said, I hear he does an unroofing surgery. I'm leaving Stanford. And I tell them the whole saga. And they're like, we're on it. We had a direct flight from San Francisco to back to Jackson, Wyoming. And by the time we landed, all my records had been transferred from Stanford and Jackson, Wyoming down to Intermountain. And they had scheduled a consult in the first, just at the beginning of the year with a potential surgery already by January 15th. And this was all because of Facebook. I'm going to keep saying that over and over again, because I still cannot believe it. And this man, lo and behold, we had a phone meeting with, on January the 5th, because I'm five hours north of him. And my stepmom and my dad got on the phone from North Carolina. And my husband called in from work. And everyone's like, we've got to like do something. And he had looked at all the testing and he had trained at Mayo. And he's like, yes, you need the surgery. And we cannot wait. But he's like, you've got to wait 10 more days. But I'm getting you in. And January 15th, I had open heart surgery unroofing of my LAD and my LCX. It was a very successful surgery and I lived. Spoiler alert. <laughs> January not. 15th, 2021, in the time of COVID, I had open heart surgery. In an unexpected place and uh, not how you planned. And <laughs> how I planned. <laughs> Hilariously, Stanford called at the beginning of March, I didn't tell them that I ended up having surgery. Like I was just like so focused on saving my life. And they called and like, hey, we're calling to, to schedule you for surgery. <laughs> and I laughed. And, you know, by then, what was I like six or seven weeks post open heart surgery? And I was like, oh, I actually, I'd, I've already had surgery. When were you scheduling me for? And they're like, oh, we were calling for like mid-April. And wow. I was I was like, wow, I am so glad. I did not wait. You might not yeah. likely look around. No. Yeah. So so you have this surgery. Mm -hmm. The story certainly does not end there. Talk about the sort of journey after that. What what happens after surgery, after that first open heart surgery? Yeah. So just a couple of days later, my mom went into the ICU 
herself with all kinds of problems. She was coming through the other side of the rectal cancer, but it had the treatment of the chemo and the radiation had done a number on her. And my mom had made some poor lifestyle choices that didn't really help her go into that super strong. So she was going into heart failure. And so that immediately kind of colored my transformation. I mean, I felt like I'd been reborn. And so that ends up being like this parallel story for the next many months. But, in you know, physically, you know, I came out of the surgery and it was a really hard waking up. I was intubated. They had tied my hands to the, the railings of the bed. So I went and rip out the breathing tube. That was really hard to wake up from that. And I want to do like a whole another episode talking about that part, because as much as I tried to prepare me for that the day before, there's really nothing like waking up like that after having your sternum sawed open. And so once they took the, the tube out and freed me, I immediately started vomiting and I threw up 25 times post-sternotomy in 24 hours. That was a pretty low point, but I was still so thankful to be on the other side. And then once I was past that, I, I started kind of coming around really quickly and I was able to walk myself from the ICU to the PCU. And it's funny, in my memory, I thought I was really fast and Jason took video and pictures of me and I looked like a T-Rex, like I was holding my arms really close to my sides and I was just kind of like stiff and, you know, I had like my catheter was coming out of my gown and then they also have a tube, a drain tube from your chest. And so like all this like bloody fluid was like going to this other holding tank and I like T-Rex it from... ICU to PCU. And, you know, I thought I was like so fast and I was so not. But I remember thinking, wow, I, I immediately felt the difference. And I said to all the the posse that was around me, like all the nurses and Jason, I was like, I'm going to live. And that's when I knew how bad it was prior. And I was like, I was out of time. I was out of time. And so they ended up letting me out of the hospital a little early because I bounced back so fast. I will say that if you take anything for those who are preparing for this surgery or any heart surgery, if you take any sort of laxative post open heart, go easy. Don't double it. <laughs> yeah. Lessons learned. Lessons <laughs> learned. Yeah. It was a pretty triumphant T-Rex walk, really. That was your, <laughs> your T-Rex walk of life. <laughs> I think that was it's, a big deal. Was you know I they they followed me you know with like a little their little holding thing to hold all my fluids and yeah it was hysterical. <laughs> um, the kind of image of that plus you realizing hey listen like I'm gonna live this is it I'm gonna live it yeah this T Rex is gonna live yes so you know the recovery was amazing I six weeks later we went down to Escalante National Monument after we had a follow up with my surgeon. And we walked and walked on the in the desert, and it was late late February, and I ended up overdoing it because that was my MO still. I still, I want to talk about that too. It's like, I was a really slow learner in listening to my body because I just demanded of my body just to get right back to things. And 
I mean, I, I did everything within reason. Like I didn't drive till they told me to, which was like six weeks. And, you know, I didn't lift things. I didn't like I did all I followed all those guidelines. But when it came to like actually walking, I was feeling so good finally. And I was so excited to be alive that I just wanted to walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And in the desert, it's like my happy place. I walked too much and I actually injured but because of my breathing had changed, I actually injured all like my diaphragm and I just hurt all my muscles in my chest and in my neck because I went on this insanely long hike and with like too much vert and I did all that six weeks post-op and it was all because I was just like not honoring my heart. I was not honoring what I'd been through in the way that it needed to be honored. I ended up being fine, but it was an incredible amount of pain and it was a really tough learning that I could have avoided. It was also necessary. And nine weeks post-open heart, my mom passed away. She died on the first day of spring, two days after my birthday of heart failure. And then we met you, Mary, and your husband, Chris, in the desert and I, you know, I put our house on the market, it immediately goes under contract. And then 12 weeks post open heart, I'm packing up her house. So like 10 weeks post open heart surgery, you know, I poured her ashes into the ocean on the coast of South Carolina, you know, flying back, fly home, not thinking we're going to like sell the house so fast, but we do. So then I immediately fly back, I'm packing up her house 12 weeks post open heart by mostly by myself in South Carolina. It was intense. Like some mountain biking in there too. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that. I remember memories of cycling together and, and just, and you talking about relearning to breathe and, and I got to kind of see it in action too and just you know you're taking it taking it pretty easy but to see someone on a mountain bike in the desert kind of that soon post-op was was pretty remarkable or stupid i'll go with remarkable that sounds more supportive <laughs> i think you're leading up to something here we'll we'll, we'll let it play out <laughs> yeah. so yeah okay you're, yeah packing up your mom's house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so i think that's where i'm gonna like end this part one is packing up my mom's house because this was a major turning point for me with this heart surgery. And little did I know I had two more surgeries coming. And then I would have, and in the process of that, I would have one of the greater unravelings of my entire life. So listeners come back for part two. Why don't you take all this in? And at your leisure, come back for part two, where I talk about my sternum having a fight with my sternal wires and some radical forgiveness for my surgeon and accepting the loss of my mom at the same time as all of this. Hey, thanks for being part of the show today. If you're finding hope and inspiration in listening to The Heart Chamber, please consider going to theheartchamberpodcast.com and making a donation. You can find the donation tab at the top of the page. Also, if you have a story that you want to share with fellow listeners, I'd love to hear from you. You can also leave a voicemail at theheartchamberpodcast.com. You can find the tab on the right side of the webpage. Simply click on it and leave me a voicemail and I'll get back to you. 
Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me today. Now let's get back to our story.